seven years ago, I took part in a seminar at Stanford University where a series of evening lectures had been arranged for those living in the Bay Area who hadn't time or money to attend the seminar. The theme of the seminar was the computer and the hand in type design. Speakers included Hermann Zapf and Matthew Carter and several other leading type designers, so the seminar attracted many other leading figures in that highly specialized field. As I had written a new piece for the opening session, I thought I could use a lecture I'd previously written for the evening series. And the one I chose was one I'd previously given here on the English calligrapher and type designer Edward Johnston. Any of you here this evening who heard that lecture might just recall that I did bring in Gerard Menel, but so briefly that you've probably forgotten. Well, after I'd repeated the lecture at Stanford, a highly talented and intelligent Dutch type designer named Gerard Unger came up to me. We'd been friends already for several years, and he always speaks his mind. Gerard said to me, very interesting, but why have you never given a talk about Gerard Menel? Evidently, he was an interesting character, yet we hardly know anything about him. I replied, you're right. Of course, he was an active founder member of the Double Crown Club, which is a dining club in London, typographical dining club, to which I and Gerard belong, he having been made an honorary foreign member. And I said to him, one day I will write a paper about Gerard Mannell, and you, Gerard Unger, can come to London to hear it. Six years later, I gave the talk, and sure enough, Gerard did come over and hear it. I've made a few alterations to suit tonight's conditions, and near the end I'll show you the same set of slides which I put together for the Double Crown Club. Those slides, like the text, were the outcome of rather lengthy original research, and in this I was helped by a great many of Gerard Mannell's uh, friends and by his two daughters, as well as the friends who had been professionally involved with Gerard. Here, then, is what I've been able to piece together about Gerard Tuke Mannell. He was born 1877 in a large house belonging to his parents a few miles southeast of Newcastle-on-Tyne in the north of England. His father was Samuel Tuke Menel and came from an old Quaker family and had the reputation of being a lively conversationalist and a ready wit. His business activities were in banking and in the local chemical trade and for a time in a firm which made coal mining plant. Gerard was the youngest of three children. Aged 14 and a half, he followed his elder brother, Piers, to Sedberg School as a boarder. This school was pleasantly situated on the Yorkshire Fells, and it was then run by Horace Hart, one of the most successful headmasters of his generation. Hart brought to Sedberg the public school tradition which he'd experienced at Rugby, Halebury, and Harrow. By strength of character and sincerity, he made a great impact on the 200 boys at Sedberg. From school records, we know that Gerard left after only two years. Nothing more known is known of his education. His brother Piers joined the Royal Navy and loved it. Gerard went to work in the family bank and hated it, so much so that he begged his uncle Wilfred in London to get him out. Wilfred was the youngest of Samuel Tuchmanel's four brothers. Unlike Gerard, he was an ardent Catholic, so ardent that Cardinal Manning decided in 1887 to give him the Westminster Press. Its main function was to print the weekly register, which Manning also made over to Wilfred to own and edit. But these burdens became too heavy as Wilfred became more deeply involved at the Catholic publishing house of Burns and Oates. So, in 1899, Wilfred asked Gerard to take charge of the Westminster Press. A year later, Gerard brought control of the press with a partner named Claude Gibson. Gerard was then only 23, but according to his cousin, Francis, he learned his trade quickly and prosperously. He broadened the range of work taken on at the press. Previously, it had been almost entirely confined to magazine and jobbing printing. 
Gerard set out to compete with the two leading book printers of the time, the Arden Press and the Chiswick Press. Gerard's appearance and manner have been described by Priscilla Johnston in a splendid biography she wrote of her father called Edward Johnston. She recalled Gerard as small and dark, with a hooked nose, a blue chin, flashing spectacles. He resembled the popular idea of a newspaper man, cocking his head like a sparrow, his head pushed back and almost his thumbs hooked into his waistcoat. He was a master of the pregnant, unfinished phrase, eked out with a wink or a jerk of the head. He acted upon impulse and with such energy as to force other people to fall in with his plans. He would burst in with the announcement, it's all arranged, nonsense, of course you're coming down. We'll motor down and discuss the whole idea. I've hired a motor car, it's at the door now. One of the most surprising things to Priscilla about this surprising man was that behind this hail-fellow-well-met exterior, the reckless generosity and the aggressiveness to which it could give place, for he made enemies as well as friends, was hidden an unimagined depth of sensitivity and understanding. His purchase of the Westminster Press coincided with the opening of the monotype works at Salford's. This, in turn, heralded a switch from hand composition to mechanical typesetting. Gerard installed his first monotype machine in 1911. The event was recorded in his wife Esther's diary for that year. She noted that he spent one entire Saturday afternoon at the press in mid-February as the new monotype machine began to work. Next weekend, it was Esther's turn. On the Sunday afternoon, Gerard's foreman showed her the new machine. This would have interested her more than many wives because she was already an established author and several of her writings had been printed and published at the Westminster Press since 1906, three years before she married Gerard. Her early books appeared under her maiden name, Esther Hallam Moorhouse. She'd been born in Yorkshire, where her father, like Gerard's, was a Quaker and belonged to a prosperous commercial family. At the age of 10, Esther settled in Sussex and, because of delicate health, was educated at home. Her first published writings were on naval subjects. In 1906, she contributed to a popular monthly magazine called The Fleet, which the Westminster Press had launched the previous year. She became quite a prolific writer on subjects ranging from literary and historical biography to music and country life. Her obituary in the Times called her a writer of versatile and graceful talents. She and Gerard had two daughters. From Esther's diaries, it's plain that theirs was a happy marriage for many years, despite Priscilla Johnson's remark that they made a surprising couple, the vigorous little man with the indefinable air of Fleet Street about him, and his tall, self-contained, intellectual wife, with dresses from Liberties, Regent Street, not Park Avenue, and shoes too elegant for the muddy lanes of Ditchling. Before World War I, the two of them often went down to Ditchling, but most of their time was spent in London, where they entertained a great deal at home. Esther got on well with what Wyndham Lewis called clan menal, which meant Gerard's large bunch of relatives. As she was an author and an intellectual, she also got on well with Gerard's friends in publishing, printing, and the arts. She went with him to hear lectures on printing, given by Emery Walker and Stanley Morrison, Sometimes she and Gerard went out to dine in Soho with friends and then on to a bowling alley. Gerard loved bowls and Esther admired his skill, often noting in her diary how well he played and what fun it was for her to watch. Gerard wasn't an artist, but he showed a keen interest in painting and sculpture and he was quite a talented amateur photographer. Some of his landscape studies show a deep feeling for nature. After he settled in Ditchling, he saw a good deal of the calligrapher Edward Johnston and the sculptor and lettercutter Eric Gill. He became very interested in their work and developed a keen appreciation of lettering and calligraphy. On his own initiative, he commissioned Gill to make a new design for the Bank of England's old-fashioned five-pound note, which Gerard hoped to get accepted. In this, he failed. 
but he succeeded brilliantly with commissions he gave Gill for publishers' devices, newspaper nameplates, and alphabet designs. For the more unworldly Johnston, Gerard acted as agent as well as patron. Between 1911 and 1912, Gerard made two influential friends in London who soon helped him launch his most important new venture, a monthly magazine named The Imprint. One friend was Ernest Jackson, an artist who specialized in lithography and was regarded as an authority on book illustration. The other was J.H. Mason, a scholarly teacher of printing at the Central School of Arts and Crafts and a former compositor of the Doves Press, where he worked under Emery Walker and Cobden Sanderson. With Edward Johnston, whose reputation had been established through his pioneer handbook on writing and illuminating and lettering, published in 1906, Jackson, Mason and Gerard were listed as the editorial committee of the imprint, though their forenames were not set out in alphabetical order. Jackson came first, followed by Mason and Johnston. Gerard printed his own name last because he regarded himself mainly as the magazine's manager, publisher, and printer. With Mason's help, he got the Monotype Corporation to make a new typeface specifically for the conditions under which the magazine was to be produced. Knowing that 10,000 copies were to be composed and printed mechanically, on machine-made paper, the new type was to appear at its best when used under these 20th century conditions. Some of the quirky letters in Caslon's 18th century design were altered to produce a modified old-style design that was named monotype imprint. Whereas Caslon had designed his type to look well when printed on dampened handmade paper, Monotype imprint was designed for mechanical setting, mechanical printing, and machine-made paper. But what impressed readers most was the originality of the imprint's purpose and scope. The editors promised to search out and print things of beauty, but they meant to concern themselves a great deal with the practical and technical sides of printing, including costing, the abolition of casual labor, and improved working conditions. They explained, and I quote, while we love cheerfulness and gaiety, be sure that our standards will be high and our use of them severe. In this way, they hope to serve their craft and its allied arts in the best conceivable way. We see around us, they say, high technical skill, but almost no culture and taste. The editors managed such a fine balance between subjects of broad interest and articles intended for those professionally engaged in the printing trades that their first number was enthusiastically welcomed, especially by the Pall Mall Gazette, which positively gushed, declaring, the imprint is the embodiment of the best sort of new idea. One wonders why it hasn't appeared before and how on earth we managed to exist without it. The leading American trade journal of that time, The Printing Art, said that every issue contained much material of great value and forecasts of the imprint seemed destined to fill a field that no other English magazine occupied. The extra work created for Gerard by the imprint led him to advertise for help in the first issue. He asked for a well-educated young man, preferably someone with experience in publishing and advertising. Stanley Morrison applied, though his only experience had been in the London office of a French bank. But when he told Gerard that he was tired of being a bank clerk, it touched a nerve. Gerard sympathized. How right you are. I was a bank clerk once myself. The post is yours. So too was the chance for Morrison to publish a few months later his first article on a typographical subject in the imprint. Gerard's character and helpfulness to others made a deep impression on Morrison. A few months after taking up his post at the imprint, he was asked to dine with Gerard and Esther. She noted that he was interested in seeing some of their old books. Ten years later, after he'd been back to dine with them, her diary mentions, quotes, considerable argument and discussion about Mussolini and Lenin and on religious questions. Writing about Gerard in 1947, Morrison declared, 
No man so invariably ignored personal credit for his own enterprises. For him, it was the idea, not the individual, that counted. Gerard's contempt for personal publicity left a lasting impression on Morrison. So too did Gerard's scrupulous care not to take credit for other people's ideas and achievements. Publication, I'm getting dry, I expect you are too, but I can't hand it round, excuse me. <laughs> Publication of the imprint was indubitably a succès d'estime for the editors and contributors, and for the Westminster Press, but it was not a commercial success. Early in December 1913, after some hard words had been said about money, Gerard wrote officially to the editors telling them that it was to be wound up. It was a sad loss to printing. Johnston's friendship with Gerard doesn't seem to have suffered from the abrupt closure of the imprint. In the spring of 1913, Johnston came up to London to take part with Gerard in a discussion about making a new typeface for Frank Pick, the design-conscious commercial manager of what we now know as London Underground. Gerard was no passive presence at that meeting, for, as Beatrice Ward wrote of him, he was one of the few master printers who could have held his own in conversation with two such mind-shakers as Johnston and Pick. But it was a thorny subject for Johnston because he had conscientious difficulties whenever he was asked to produce a design for somebody else to execute. His daughter doubted whether there was another man in England who could have persuaded him to do it, but Gerard eventually did. For two years, nothing happened. Then, in 1915, Pick was stung into action by a remark published by Letherby about the way German typefounders were already exploiting Johnston's discoveries about lettering, this being cited as an example of British industry failing to use its best native designers. Pick set up a further meeting for October 1915 with Gerard and Johnston, and this time they were joined by Gill. Before they met with Pick, Gerard took Gill and Johnston out to lunch. What happened there has been conjured up by Priscilla Johnston. Casually, Gerard would have thrown in his suggestion through a haze of tobacco smoke as the three sat together. After giving some account of what was wanted, Gerard would have pitched his idea at them as if he was inviting them to scribble a design on a postcard. You two, you two could do something, couldn't you? Huh? Of course you could. Twice in November 1915, Gill met Johnston to discuss the underground alphabets. A week before Christmas 1915, Johnston made his first sketches, but he only completed the designs in July 1916. All through that period, he and Gill met frequently, but in the end, Gill dropped out saying that he had too much work on hand, as indeed he had, and that, quotes, it was Johnston's business. Nonetheless, he, Gill, earned 10% of Johnston's 50-guinea fee for drawing the underground alphabets, so Johnston and Gerard must have agreed that Gill's part had been important enough to justify him being given that percentage of Johnston's fee, which translates, in modern parlance, to £52.5. Another gifted artist for whom Gerard found a lot of work was the American painter and designer Edward McKnight Kaufer. They first met during Kaufer's visit to Ditchling in 1917. By then, the Westminster Press had built up a reputation for its skill in printing posters, a field in which Kaufer excelled. As early as 1914, Gerard had collaborated with Ernest Jackson, his former co-editor on the imprint, to produce eight fine posters for London Underground, drawn by members of the Senefelder Club, in which Jackson was a leading light. These posters had raised the position gained by art in advertising, and Gerard was eager to keep up the momentum. He realised what an asset Kaufer's talents could be to the Westminster Press, and he used them there extensively in the early 20s. Besides printing many of Kaufer's best posters, he printed the superb book illustrations which Kaufer designed for Francis Mennell's Nonsuch Edition of the Anatomy of Melancholy. Gerard also managed to persuade Kaufer to take on the post of Director of Poster and Pictorial Advertising at the Westminster Press 
and, in addition, to write a magnificent book on the art of the poster appropriately dedicated to Frank Pick of London Underground. Most of this book was printed at the Westminster Press, but some of the colour plates were done at the Sun Engraving Company, run by Gerard's friend Edward Hunter. Gerard was in frequent contact with Hunter, for whose firm he designed and edited a little-known house magazine called Illustration, which you'll see later on the screen. Gerard seemed to have a knack for making time to promote and produce whatever he considered to be worth doing. In 1917, he got Johnston to make a trial cover for a master printer's and allied trades journal. Later, he managed to inaugurate, co-edit, and print the highly successful Master Printers and Typographical Yearbook. The Employers' Federation, which sponsored this work, had the foresight to realize that in less skilled hands, their annual might have been nothing more than a list of names. Instead, the editors put together so many helpful bits of background information and useful articles that it turned out to be a very interesting volume, well printed and tastefully bound by the Westminster Press. The installation of monotype equipment at Gerard's printing plant had coincided with the opening in 1912 of a new sales office which he opened just off Covent Garden. With a base near so many publishers' offices, he gradually managed to increase the amount of bookwork taken on at his plant. On the sales office notepaper, Gerard listed five services offered by his press, namely printing, type arrangement, advertising, designing, and finally publishing. By separating type arrangement from designing, Gerard made a distinction between his ability to provide a wide choice of types which he was willing to arrange in accordance with his client's instructions and the capacity which the Westminster Press had developed to design books, journals, and all manner of other printing. His ability to undertake typographical design was greatly helped, of course, by his excellent range of types and ornaments and by the talents of his well-trained staff. What his press could offer was amusingly described by the London publisher Frank Sidgwick. Here are his words. If the customer has a definite idea of format, the press will execute it to perfection. If the customer has half an idea, the press will supply the other half. And if the customer has no idea, he may leave the whole design and execution to the Westminster Press with complete confidence. The press developed a style of bookwork that was much admired by Stanley Morrison, who observed in 1929 that its compositions were rational rather than fashionable, as the press, though using, as Morrison put it, the utmost, most modern methods of mechanical composition, does not yield to typographical superstitions. A tinge of this attitude figured in the advertisement for his press which Gerard placed in early numbers of the Fleuron, a word which most of you know means printer's flowers. The wording went thus. The Westminster Press, printers of distinction, flowers by request, but usually very plain and distinguished work, as done for all the best publishers and others who require their printing to be readable without distraction of any kind. Gerard's gift for advertising was praised in 1914 by a contributor to a special printing number of the Times. Remarking on the recent elevation of typographic standards in printed salesmanship, the writer held that, quotes, most of the credit for bringing intelligent typography to the service of advertisers belong jointly to Gerard Mennell and Joseph Thorpe, a view which still seems valid to me. A leading poster artist of that period, Horace Taylor, wrote an article in 1926 for a periodical called Commercial Art, and it dealt with the work of the Westminster Press and was subtitled Printing and Modern Art. Taylor admired Gerard for combining a knowing respect for the past in printing with an active appreciation of the most modern in pictorial art. A moment ago, I mentioned Gerard's well-trained staff. Their devotion sustained the press's reputation for printing, the first service in Gerard's list. Let me tell you how it was appreciated by two of his contemporaries, one an artist and the other a publisher. 
when Thomas Lewinsky saw how the press had handled his illustrations for an Edith Sitwell poem. He wrote, quotes, I'm most anxious that you should know how delighted I am with your printing of the Elegy on Dead Fashion. The machining of the illustrations is perfect. The machining means, I think, press work more over here. Arthur War of Chapman and Hall also remarked on the press's fine, even press work, adding that, quotes, a book turned out by the Westminster Press is a joy to read and handle. He knew no better in, uh, printing in England at that time. Here we go again. Esther's diaries for the mid-twenties show that Gerard brought home Lawrence of Arabia late one evening in September 1924. Her diaries also reveal that Manning Pike often dined with them at that period and that they occasionally met the artist Eric Kennington. A description of Pike can be found in an article on the printing of The Seven Pillars of Wisdom written by Lawrence's official biographer, Jeremy Wilson. Writing in 1985 for Matrix... Wilson said Lawrence had approached Francis Menel for help with typesetting and supplying a hand press and platen press. As Francis was under a cloud at that time and was described by Oliver Simon as being confined to a cell at the Pelican Press and denied access to its staff and plant while the press was run by its two managers, I asked Wilson to give me the source for his mention of Francis Menel. It transpired that it was a letter from Lawrence to Kennington the artist mainly responsible for illustrating The Seven Pillars, but that only the name Menel was mentioned without giving a first name. The circumstantial evidence now indicates that it was Gerard Menel who helped to arrange for the text of The Seven Pillars of Wisdom to be supplied on monotype galleys before it was made up into page by Pike. Gerard may also have helped to find the presses, being chief proprietor of a fair-sized printing plant. Furthermore, Rosemary... Gerard's daughter remembers that Lawrence had dealings with her father at his office. Turning to a more clearly documented achievement, Gerard had every reason to be delighted to learn that the 50 best-produced books of 1928, chosen by the First Edition Club, included 10 printed at the Westminster Press, a higher number than any other printing house. How many books he printed that year is impossible to say but I have traced 40 books which Gerard printed in 1928. During the 20s, he worked for at least 30 London publishers and continued to handle a great deal of periodical printing and advertising work. 66 years ago, Gerard played a leading role in creating a new London dining club expressly to provide opportunities for exchanging ideas on good printing. Unlike Gerard, most of the founder members were in their 20s or 30s. The name Double Crown was chosen partly because it was also the name of a, quite a popular size of paper used for books and partly because the club was originally intended to crown each year two books which members thought deserved that honour. But as members ha held such diverging views, the club only survived and survives to this day, by dropping the idea of crowning books. The club had been Oliver Simon's brainchild, but according to Francis Menel, Gerard was one of its two obstetricians. The other was Hubert Foss of Oxford University Press, another close friend of Gerard's. The first president of the club was Holbrook Jackson, a man of letters with an interest in the visual arts which dated back to 1907 when he and Eric Gill had founded the Fabian Arts and Philosophy Group. Gerard supplied the Double Crown Club with all its preliminary stationery and any other printing matter that it needed. At his suggestion, Noel Rook drew a device with the club's initials accompanied by a pair of elegant crowns Gerard printed and designed menus for the club's dinners and acted as a wise elder statesman. At a meeting, when a list of ten distinguished people proposed for honorary membership was rejected in toto by those present, Gerard suggested that the same ten should be put up instead for ordinary membership, so putting an end to a squabble and at the same time improving the club's finances. For Gerard, the twenties was a decade of great achievement, culminating in the publication of impressive new Westminster Press type specimen book, 
early in 1929, and a eulogy by Frank Sedgwick, published in the Studio Magazine in 1930. How, then, can I account for his early retirement in 1931, at the age of 54, and his decision to leave London and settle in Ditchling, where his life came to a tragic and early end? One sad reason which may partly account for his rapid decline and early death, is that by 1931 he'd become an alcoholic. For us today, that may seem a totally inadequate reason for giving up work and leaving London. But in 1931, things were very different. The social stigma of being an alcoholic was then extremely acute. Anyone with similar problems today might go to a clinic to be dried out or might be helped by Alcoholics Anonymous. But that organization wasn't founded until the mid-30s here in New York City, and only later did it come to my country. By leaving London, Gerard may have hoped to get away from his drinking companions and so make it easier to bring his problem under control. He tried to play a useful part in Ditchling life and took a leading role in starting a new bowls club, which was opened by the Prince of Wales. He made a lot of local friends, But his trouble with alcohol, which had struck other members of his family, was never brought under lasting control. Indeed, it began to get worse. After he turned up for the Double Crown Club's 50th dinner in 1935, John Carter, as the club's secretary, described in the minutes of the meeting how, quotes, Mr. Gerard Menel, in a long series of asides, was understood to deplore practically everything, but in particular what he called heavy dinners. And I should add for your benefit that a six-course meal was served to members that evening. A year later, in 1936, he separated from his wife and went to live in lodgings at Burgess Hill. I've managed to trace only two letters written by Gerard in his final years, One was sent to his cousin Francis just before a wartime luncheon meeting of the Double Crown Club held in January 1942. It makes very sad reading. Gerard explained that his local solicitor had decamped to Malaya with all Gerard's money, leaving Gerard quite broke. Could Francis inquire at the Double Crown lunch if anyone would give him a job, however humble, and would Francis lend him a fiver, meaning a five-pound note, Francis did lend, send the money, but he admitted later that when it came to helping Gerard find a job, quotes, in conscience, as he put it, he couldn't or so he thought. But perhaps, Francis added ruefully, conscience makes sinners of us all. From a letter Gerard wrote to Edward Johnston on the 2nd of March 1943, which I found in the Pierpont Morgan Library, it's clear that Johnston also sent a fiver to Gerard. Six months later, we know from a death certificate that Gerard committed suicide on the 11th of September 1943 while the balance of his mind was disturbed, a finding which in England allows the dead to be buried in consecrated ground. In fact, he deliberately jumped from a railway bridge onto the tracks along which he'd seen a train approaching and had timed his jump with great care. Poor old Gerard, wrote Francis to Holbrook Jackson nearly a fortnight later. What an unlucky and unjust deal he had. He prepared so much and inherited so little. Francis wished Holbrook had been about to see that an appreciative word was published in the Times, but Holbrook had been ill when Gerard died and was still away convalescent when news of the death reached him. I haven't found a single obituary of Gerard in any newspaper or trade journal published in 1943 when, of course, many of his friends and former colleagues were away on war service. In 1972, Francis wrote a backhanded tribute to Gerard for the Wink in the Words Society's reprint of the first number of the imprint, but Francis dosed it with phrases barbed enough to give it a bitter taste. So I've tried in compiling this memoir to gather together the views of Gerard's other contemporaries and to sketch his main achievements. However, it wouldn't be adequate unless I ended by showing you slides to give you a visual impression of the man and of his contribution to earlier 20th century typography in my country. And after the slides, I'll try to summarize in just a few moments the view I formed of this sadly neglected man.
thank you so much. Uh, you have to press. Uh, I'll try again. No, that's going to end on. Now just press. There we go. Here we go. Here's one of two uh, likenesses I'll show you of Gerard. This one, probably taken around the year 1920, an alert and resolute face. Three years before his marriage to Esther in 1919, he printed and published her first book at the Westminster Press. An introduction was written by Alice, the poet, married to Gerard's uncle, Wilfred. His first typographical publication was the imprint with a nameplate and border pen drawn by Edward Johnston. In the penultimate issue, 13 pages were occupied by Morrison's first typographical essay. His subject, liturgical books, was extensively illustrated in red and black, here with the Fustenschoffer Psalter of 1457. On the back cover was this advertisement using a block lifted from the imprint's serialization of Dibdin's essay on printer's devices, the one you see here, a late 15th century Parisian printer, Philippe Pigouchet. In 1915, Gerard produced this title page set in Gaudi's Kennerley type. It was printed for Hilary Pepler's Hampshire House workshops before Pepler moved to Ditchling and set up the St. Dominic's Press there. Four years later, Gerard did a lot of work for Harold Munro's Poetry Bookshop and printed many numbers of his monthly chapbook, including this issue of August 1919, with a decoration by Albert Rutherston. Next, I'll show you where the printing was done. Notice high on the facade the painted sign which reads, General Printing Works, Books, Magazines, Booklets, Circulars, posters, catalogues. The building you see came down in the 1950s. It was on the Harrow Road, not far from Paddington Station. Moving inside, here's part of the composing room. In the foreground at the left is the top of the imposing stone, and at the far end of the room, as well as on the right, you can see type cases and composing frames. In 1922, Carver produced this poster, with dramatic colouring for the Harrow device engraved six years earlier on wood by Eric Gill. Obviously, the Harrow alludes to the road where the press was located. It also manages to echo the portcullis, which is such a prominent feature of the city of Westminster's emblem, and it may even be seen as a New Testament allusion to releasing the souls of the righteous, the harrowing of hell. From 1922, Carver played an increasingly important role at the press. At the foot of this advertisement in the magazine Commercial Art, uh, the issue for October 23, Carver is described as director of poster and pictorial advertising, and the border around this advertisement is signed by him. The Westminster Press later printed his pioneer book on the art of the poster, in which Kaufer thanked Gerard and Edward Hunter for helping him to convert the idea of a book on the subject into a tangible reality. Now for a typographic and gastronomic tease. Here's what the Double Crown members were served at the Café Royal at the second dinner in 1924. As there was to be a discussion on typefaces after the meal, Gerard designed an eight-page menu in which he set up the fair in four different typographical styles. Here it's in a style once known as artistic printing. On the back of this page was this parody of Kerwin Press style. The line at the foot of the page, get joy into your printed matter, uh, cheerily, stems from a promotional leaflet which Harold Kerwin produced in 1920 with a text which began, Get the spirit of joy into your printed things. And it too had a Claude Lovett Fraser decoration for it. Facing this came a parody of the style developed by Charles Hobson at his cloister press and with help from Morrison and others set within a houndstooth border. And over the page, this bed of roses a riot of printer's flowers which swamps the text. 
And in contrast, Gerard placed opposite this page a space reserved for the very latest era, beauty born of simplicity. It ends, see the Fleuron number three advertisement. That number had been published a couple of weeks earlier and it was mentioned in this letter written by Gerard to Oliver Simon from his Henrietta Street offices. I'll read it. I found the Fleuron when I got back from lunch. Thank you very much indeed. It looks first rate. But from an old gentleman like me, Gerard was then a few days away from his 47th birthday while Oliver was 29, the type's a little small for so long a line. It's a bit thin for such hard paper. The Fleuron was set in 12-point Caslon, 2-point leaded. I feel that Morrison's book, meaning the four centuries of fine printing, published in folio by Ben Brothers, would be much better brought out in parts about this size, the size of the Fleuron, a modest quarter. The thing's too enormous to look at with any comfort. One would sacrifice some of the big pages or even have them reduced to be able to use the book and lend it without having a taxi. Very many thanks. The Westminster and Cohen presses were sometimes direct competitors. This may look to you typical of Cohen's style, but the first edition was in fact printed at the Westminster Press in 1921. When a large reprint was needed three years later, Gerard couldn't manage it fast enough, so Cohen got the job and added a green to the border. The use of batik papers like these uh, was used, uh, they were also employed by some of Gerard's competitors. The two seen here were used on a book of verses which the Westminster Press reprinted from Punch, again for Harold Munro's poetry bookshop. Turning now from books to advertising, here I think we may be into trouble. Here, we seem to have a, a jam. Can you try and unjam? <coughs> I'm sorry, we had a run-through, and of course it didn't jam then. It reserves itself for an audience. Right. Um, that, and now I'll... No, that's where we're into trouble. If necessary, I'll skip one. Right, here's a cover design by Kaufer for a piece of commercial work which Oliver Simon thought good enough to place first in a section of contemporary commercial work shown at the end of the second number of the Fleuron. Inside, the vintner, Francis Downman, described his wines in rhyming couplets, and Gerard set each couplet in a different type. In line five, the detestable Dora is an acronym for the Defence of the Realm Act, which restricted the hours during which wine could be sold. Not as severe as your prohibition laws, but just as unpopular. On the facing page, the press thanked its customers for letting them make his text into a printer's specimen sheet and gave its verdict that his wines were better than his rhymes. Now for a brief look at four title pages from the mid-twenties. This, printed for Chatto and Windus with four drawings by Albert Rutherston in pen and watercolour and six more in black and white. This for Oxford University Press, Gaudi hand-tooled caps within the tooth border he'd used for the double crown menu I showed earlier. Next, another one for Chatto and Windus with a frontispiece by David Garnett's first wife. The Westminster Press also printed David Garnett's Lady and a Fox and a man at the zoo. And here's a title page from one of four books printed at the Westminster Press for the Fan Frolico Press, set in monotype Polyphilus Roman and Blado Italics, which had been used by Gerard a year earlier for the Nonsuch Dante. Much less familiar is this magazine called Illustration, with a nameplate by Edward Johnston and edited in the 20s for Gerard's friend Edward Hunter. As you see, it was devoted to the craft of mechanical reproduction, to art and workmanship in printing, and to science in advertising and commerce. The quality of its illustrations was very high indeed, as you can judge 
from this lovely gravure reproduction of a nude carved by Eric Gill in 1925, cut in Welsh Capley stone. Carfer's work was also reproduced. Here's a poster Carfer made to advertise sun engraving services as blockmakers and designers, drawn in 1921. And going back to Carfer's first meeting with Gerard in 1917, here's a reproduction of a watercolour of Oldland Mill at Ditchling, inscribed to Gerard by Carfer and dated 1917. Carfer's appointment at the Westminster Press, on the other side of this sheet, all the text types were shown, but a more substantial piece of publicity was this attractively bound, forcefully titled work called Halt. This combined this combined publicity and utility, as you'll gather in a moment. The liveliness of the cover was carried through to the title page set in Rudolf Koch's Antiqua from the Klingspor foundry, also known as Lacano Bold. After the title page came tributes from satisfied clients, each set in a different named type. One mentioned difficult work done for the underground, the other book work for a leading playwright and Shakespearean scholar, Harley Granville Barker. To ensure that Halt was kept indefinitely by those who received it, Gerard explained, this is a notebook. When you've used it, it will be a reference book. Under the letters of the alphabet, put the names of your friends with addresses and phone numbers and so forth. The red italic caps had been drawn for the press by Gill in 1926 with a matching set of Roman capitals. They closely resemble the Perpetua type which Monotype issued two years later, partly because Monotype used Gerard's Gill drawings after they had mislaid those which Gill had drawn for Monotype Perpetua in 1925. Gill's types appeared again in a thick type specimen book printed in 1928 with this title page in the Gill Sand series issued in 1928 by Monotype, but with numerals from another font at the foot of this uh, page for the four, the nine, and the two in the imprint. In the late 20s, Gerard took on a lot more bookwork, and Clan Mennell continued to provide fodder for the press. This memoir of Alice by Viola was printed for Cape in 1929. But two years later, Gerard retired to Ditchling, where Edwin Morrow, uh, the tall figure on the right and a contributor to Punch, drew Gerard gazing through his pince-nez at a raised and none too clean glass. Luckily for us, much of the printer's work survives long after his death, and one piece printed by Gerard hangs in his daughter Rosemary's house at Ditchling, where it was photographed for my last slide so that I can show you what is called the Wonderground map. It was done, of course, for Underground, which MacDonald Gill, Eric Gill's brother, drew, and which Gerard printed in five colours on a sheet 50 by 40. That is the end of the slides, but if we can now have the lights up, which I'll help at this end, I'll just wrap it up. This will be brief, never fear. I'll sum up Gerard's achievements in three stages. First, I'll deal with his achievements at the Westminster Press, next with his contribution to improving the quality of design, and lastly, I'll sum up his personal qualities. Gerard transformed the Westminster Press. He provided it with a wider range of work, better equipment, an improved costing system, and the capacity to compete with quality printers like the Arden and Chiswick Presses. He secured work from most of the leading London publishers who took pride in the appearance of their books, and he achieved a long string of successes in the annual exhibitions of the 50 best books. He made sure that the Westminster Press reputation was enhanced by original and effective advertising and by well-planned type specimen books containing several types and ornaments which only the Westminster Press could offer. His effective and well-argued concern with design led him to found the pioneering and influential magazine, The Imprint, and to commission a suitable new type in which to set it. His discerning eye 
led him to champion artists like Edward Johnston and McKnight Kaufer, and his character was such that he was able to wheedle them into completing work which they would never have finished without Gerard. His grasp of the importance of copy, type, and illustration in, adver in advertisements enabled him to make a remarkable contribution to raising standards in British advertising. Though it was not obvious to everyone, he was, as the novelist and biographer Priscilla Johnston put it, a man of unimagined depth of sensitivity and understanding. Yet, he could be pugnacious and energetic in pursuing his ideals. He was a good organizer and had a talent for getting things done. He was generous in helping others and gave freely of his time to organizations such as the British Federation of Master Printers and the Double Crown Club and even to the Ditchling Bowls Club in his declining years. He was a convivial man who drank in company, preferring even bad company to solitary drinking. He set himself high standards in design and quality and execution. He even planned his own suicide with care and brave resolve. The greatest tragedy was that he became an alcoholic before society had learned to show as much compassion and give as much help as it does give today to alcoholics. Nevertheless, his typographical achievements still testify to his abilities, and the written and printed opinions of his contemporaries leave no doubt that he made an impressive contribution in his lifetime to typography, calligraphy, and art. I wish I'd had the privilege of knowing him at his peak, but I'm grateful to have had a chance to discover for myself the extent of his contribution and to share my knowledge of it with you this evening. Thank you very much. Welcome. <laughs> you tell me even if you didn't talk to me. Greetings from Southern California, where John Dreyfus has been a recent and welcome visitor. No more welcome, however, than here. As you know, he has lectured to the Friends of the Book Arts Press more often than any other person, including me, which is a high compliment, for me at least. I hope you'll join our speaker for a glass of wine in room 502 Butler. And also say hello to our next speaker, G. Thomas Tansel, who will be speaking uh, approximately in this space on Monday the 17th of December, giving the 1990 Malkin Lecture.